We were at Abby's parents' house on Thanksgiving in 1976, a sort of farewell as we were making our way to New York for our flight to Madeira on December 2nd. It would be almost 30 years before we would celebrate Thanksgiving in the U.S. again. After we had spent three years in Brazil, the Lord was sending us to a little Portuguese island in the middle of the Atlantic. We knew nothing about the island and had no contacts there. We were starting from absolute scratch. We had built crates to hold everything we were going to take with us and had sold or given away everything else. We were all in on this. No turning back, no second thoughts. We were burning our bridges behind us. The only earthly possession we left behind was Abby's wedding dress, stored at my parents' house. And a bank account. Everything we owned in this world was either being worn on our bodies, packed in our suitcases, or crated for shipping from New York. Leaving Abby's parents' house in Arkansas, we drove to New York City by way of Florida to visit one more church before leaving for the new mission field. When the pastor of the church introduced us to the congregation, he summarized our situation by saying, they're going to fly to Madeira and get off the plane and say, here we are. Where do we eat supper? Well, supper was the least of our concerns that night on December 3rd, 1976, when we stepped on Madeira soil for the first time. We had three small children, ages three to nine, and no place to stay. That was before the internet, online bookings, and cell phones. In fact, the island was barely in the age of telephones. Later on, after we got a house, we applied for a telephone. It only took us five years to get one. I interrupt for a brief explanation here. You'll notice I've been saying Madeira instead of Madeira, the usual pronunciation in English. After all the years on the island, I unconsciously use the Portuguese pronunciation. I'll try to use English, but if I slip up, forgive me. You'll know what I'm talking about. Anyway, we arrived on that night in December and had no reservations. It was 8.30 at night. We knew no one. The Lord, of course, provided us with a place to stay and food to eat, and the details of that story will be told in the Give Me This Mountain podcast. But the situation illustrates a fundamental aspect of living by faith. I call it the what now factor. Walking by faith is just that. Walking. When we walk, we take one step at a time. Then the next step. In the walk of faith, we do what God tells us to do, then say, what now? We must wait for him to give us instructions for the next step, which may mean we continue doing what we know he has told us to do until he tells us to do something else. As we begin our study of the book of Judges, Israel was in a what now situation. They were finally in the land promised to Abraham 500 years earlier after the previous generation had wandered 40 years in the desert under the leadership of Moses. Then under Joshua, they had occupied the land and divided it among the 12 tribes. Great, they'd done it. I can just hear them saying, Okay, here we are. Where do we eat supper? Or, what now? After all, they had never governed a territory. They had never been responsible for the administration of a country. They knew all about pitching tents and then taking them down and moving to another location and then pitching their tents again and again 
and again. They had never settled in cities and villages. The only thing of import they had built was the house of the Lord. And after all, it was a tent also. The book of Judges relates the early history of God's people as they defended themselves and consolidated their presence among the various other peoples, and before they had any sort of administrative structure to unite them as a nation with borders. The only thing uniting them was their observance of the laws God had given them through Moses. They had a lot of lessons to learn, lessons that can help us. God leads us into situations we've never faced before. He calls us to undertake tasks we've never done in our lives. This is a fundamental feature of faith. The title of the book says, Judges. The term used to describe the first leaders of the people of Israel. But we only find the first mention of them in chapter 3. The introduction in the first two chapters sets the scene and establishes the storyline for the rest of the book. The opening line, After the death of Joshua will be echoed many times in the chapters and years to come, the names changing as each leader passes away. Leaders die, new leaders arise. In Israel's case, the people were eventually ruled by kings. Kings came to the throne, kings died. The fortunes of the nation rose and fell in line with the spiritual quality of those leaders. As I pointed out in the previous episode, Pharaoh is never far away, Although Israel had been redeemed from the bondage of Egypt, both biblical and secular history tell us that Egypt had always had a presence in the land of Canaan. This was due to the importance of the trade routes that connected the Egyptian empire to the Hittites in the north, that's where modern Turkey is today, and the great empires of the east, Assyria, Babylonia, Persia, and the points beyond. We, like Israel in relation to Egypt, discover that having been redeemed from the bondage of sin does not remove us from the sphere of sin's influence. In a sense, it's now that we enter the battle for real. Our excursion through the history of Israel begins then with the death of Joshua, a good leader. Over the next 900 years or so, we journey over the heights of victory and glory and wander through the dark valleys of defeat and destruction. Although this issue of the control of the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea has been front and center in international politics throughout the 20th century, and it's still a hot topic, the very facts we read about in the Old Testament from the time of Abraham and the book of Genesis, through Exodus, Joshua and the Judges, down to the time of Israel's return from the captivity, around 900 years later, are used to justify the rights claimed by the modern state of Israel. As for us, we need to see what these lessons teach us about God and our relationship with Him. By reading the first two chapters, we learn, first of all, God's people need leaders. Who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? Chapter 1, verse 1. This was the first question the Israelites raised. In other words, Who's going to lead us? Which of the tribes will go first? Countries need leaders. Churches need leaders. Families need leaders. But it's important to seek leaders in the right way. Judges 1.1 says, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, who will be the first to fight for us against the Canaanites. The danger is to look for leaders that appeal to us because of their personality, their physical appearance, persuasive talk. 
Later in Israel's history, when God replaced the first king, Saul, who was a popular choice in the eyes of the people, but one who was not pleasing to God, he sent Samuel to anoint David. When Samuel questioned God about why David's eldest brother, Eliab, was passed over, the Lord told Samuel, Do not look at his, his, that is, Eliab's appearance, or his stature, because I have rejected him. Man does not see what the Lord sees, for man sees what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. In choosing leaders at all levels of our government, we need to seek God's choice rather than trust in the politicians' rankings in the polls or follow what people are saying on social media. Obviously, choice of church leaders is even more crucial. But too often, pastors are chosen for reasons of human wisdom and not at God's direction. In the New Testament, these leaders are called bishops, elders, or pastors and are considered to be worthy of financial support. 1 Timothy 5.17 But free of greed. 1 Timothy 3, verse 3, Titus 1, 7. Much has been said and practiced regarding the degree of authority these leaders have over the flock. But the Apostle Peter said that such elders are not to lord it over the flock. 1 Peter 5, 3. Jesus looked with compassion on the multitudes who are as sheep without a shepherd. In Portuguese, pastor is the word for shepherd and the same word for the church leader, who is to lead and guide the flock without being domineering. God's people need direction with wisdom that comes from experience with the Lord and the knowledge of his word. The second thing we learn is that the fate of God's people depends largely on the character of the leaders or the lack of one to guide them. Chapter 2, verse 10 says, After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. The result? Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, the false gods. Verse 11. This provoked the Lord to anger, who allowed the land to be overrun by their enemies, and they could not resist them, because the hand of the Lord was against his own people. In their distress, the Lord raised up leaders, called judges, and he was with the people and saved them out of the hands of their enemies, as long as the judge lived. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers. Verses 18 and 19. What was true then is true now. The lives of the Israelites of 3,000 years ago serve as examples to us today. Good and bad. There are a lot of lessons to be learned. The spiritual state of churches and nations today reflects the spiritual state of their leaders. See episode 2, War and Peace, where I talk about this in greater detail. Then the third lesson we should note in these two chapters is this. Our experience and knowledge of God is not automatically transmitted to our children through our DNA. Judges 2.10 says, Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. In other words, a generation of parents failed to pass on to their children the knowledge of the Lord and what he had done. Do we see any application there for us? Every succeeding poll regarding the spiritual identification of Americans over the last several decades reports a steep and steady decline in the number of those who identify as Christian or who attend church or who believe there is a God. 
there's been a failure of each generation to successfully transmit its values and beliefs to their children. President Ronald Reagan famously said, Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. Well, that's true about us as God's people. But there's a difference. Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And although the flame of truth may appear to have died out in some places and at some points in time, the Holy Spirit can fan the flames of faith from the glowing embers. It behooves us to pass our knowledge of the Lord on to our children and to our grandchildren. Fourthly, we read in Judges 1.6 that when Judah fought against the Canaanites, it says, Adoni Bezek, the king, fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. That's verse 6. Basically, the king's reaction was this. I had it coming. Verse 7 says, quoting Adoni Bezek, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. This was a common practice that was designed to cripple one's enemies, disabling them so that they would no longer be a threat. Right off the bat in this book, we come across a situation of shocking cruelty, the first of many to come in the chapters ahead of us. The Bible faithfully reports the true nature of human situation and doesn't gloss it over. The atrocities and violence that shock us on the news reports each day are nothing new. This has always been the state of the human race under the curse. The human race has always been cruel to its fellow members. Let me add a footnote here. When Adoni Bezik said, God has paid me back, he didn't use the word Yahweh, the name God revealed to Moses to distinguish himself from the gods of the other nations. One thing we'll note throughout this journey is that none of the other nations were godless. He used the word Elohim. That would be more or less the generic name for God in those countries. One thing we'll note throughout the, this journey is that none of the nations were godless. Wars were, in fact, my God is bigger than your God events. God was going to use his people Israel to demonstrate that he, Jehovah, Yahweh, often written in all caps in our English Bibles, is the God of gods. And the other deities... Uh, normally designated by the word Elohim, were not actually God at all. In the fifth place, we're reminded that we face a continuing battle against sin and the flesh. Most of chapter 1 details the successes and failures of the various tribes of Israel as they consolidated their victory over the peoples in their new homeland, verses 9 through 36 in that chapter. Judah seems to have had general success, particularly in the hill country. But, verse 19 says, they were unable to drive the people, the Canaanites, from the plains because they had iron chariots. Chariots would have been of limited usefulness in the hills, but on the plains they were a formidable instrument in the hands of the enemy. Judah's foot soldiers were powerless against horses and chariots. 
I see this as a warning that we will never defeat the enemy in our strength, and much less so on his grounds. James, in his letter, chapter 4, verse 7, says we are to resist the devil, not to pursue him. Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, instructs us to stand fast and with the proper armor, and we can defeat the great foe, but we're not chasing. Our calling is to preach the truth of the gospel, not to embark on dragon-slaying campaigns to eliminate our great adversary. Satan has the advantage over us in power, cunning, and experience. And although he's not omnipotent or omniscient, we are no match for him. So we must always remember that Satan is no match for our Lord, however. The psalmist said, Some take pride in chariots and others in horses, but we take pride in the name of Yahweh our God. That's Psalm 20, verse 7. This is a lesson that is repeated time and time again in the chapters to come. Our Lord has conquered Satan. We don't have to go out and do it ourselves. The other tribes were also unable to drive out their enemies. Manasseh couldn't drive out the Canaanites because, quote, they were determined to live in that land. Verse 27. Sin is a persistent foe, rooted in our flesh and used by Satan to tempt us to disobey the Lord. James 1.14 says, Each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Satan is determined to occupy our hearts, and he will not give up. He counts on wearing us down. The writer to the Hebrews encourages believers to persist in their Christian lives, saying, quote, We have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in our struggle against sin. Chapter 12, verse 4. But some of the tribes succeeded in subjecting the Canaanites to slave labor. Verses 28, 30, 33, 35. But that also implied they were still living in the sphere of the influence of the idolatrous peoples. Verse 34 and 35 of chapter 1 says, The Amorites forced the Danites into the hill country and did not allow them to go down into the valley. The Amorites refused to leave Harheris, Ajalon, Saebim. This is a picture of the stubborn and powerful persistence of sin in our lives. The Canaanites lived among the Ephraimites, verse 29 says, and the Zebulonites, verse 30. But the word says that the people of Asher, one of the other tribes, lived among the Canaanites, verse 32, as did the Naphtalites, verse 33. Is there a difference between the Canaanites dwelling among some tribes of the Israelites while other tribes dwelt among the Canaanites? Well, putting this in the context of our society today, we could ask, is the world at home in our churches, or do God's people feel at home in the world? Most certainly, when God's people feel at home in the world, the world will feel at home in the church. Obviously, we live in this world, but we're not to be of this world or feel at home here. Then, lastly, God purposefully allows some of our enemies to remain and afflict us. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, I will no longer drive out before them, before Israel, any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel. That's chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. 
The Lord allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hand of Joshua. Verse 23. One of the biggest questions believers ask is, well, why doesn't God just remove all our sinful inclinations when we believe? Why do we face these battles all the days of our lives? The first six verses of Judges 3 reinforce the answer we have already seen in chapter 2. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 say, These are the nations the Lord left in order to test Israel, since Israel had fought none of these in any of the wars with Canaan. This was to teach the future generations of the Israelites how to fight in battle, especially those who had not fought before. The Christian life is one of warfare, and sooner or later we will all face the fires of testing. As we have already noted, our spiritual maturity is not hereditary. Each generation must learn its lessons by personal experience. Peter encouraged the suffering believers of his day with the words, In this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. That's 1 Peter 1, verse 6. He goes on to say that these trials test our faith, even as fire purifies gold. The metaphor of testing changes from discipline and fighting the good fight to having our faith purified by trials. In either case, God will not leave us in a situation where we feel we can handle it on our own and don't need to bother him. This is the essence of faith, and the just shall live by faith, as the word says. If our parents were tried and true believers of the Lord and true followers, are we? A final note on the chronology of the biblical text. The series of books before us are in general chronological order, as are the events within them, but the Biblical text is not written to give a strict chronological order of events. Its purpose is to communicate God's truth to us. Joshua 1.1 says, After the death of Joshua. But then later in chapter 2 verse 6 we read, Joshua sent the people away, and the Israelites went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. Hmm. There will be many instances where we must be sensitive to the context. While believing in the inspired, infallible truth of the Word, let us not be tempted to resort to illogical explanations and convoluted arguments to, quote, defend the Bible. God is quite capable of defending His Word. Our obligation is to obey it and be prepared. There will be what-now times when we say, well, here we are. Where do we eat supper? What next? The Good Shepherd will lead his people to green pastures, or maybe dark valleys. But let us be assured that he will lead. He knows perfectly well how badly we need a leader. In our next episode, we look at the first of the judges, Othniel.